life surrounded. Troubles abounded. The path I traveled was cast in darkness. The unknown reached out before me and behind me. I was overwhelmed by struggles. I could not forge my own way. I had to rely on another, leaving my past behind in search of the truth. I took wrong turns and ended up farther from where I was meant to be. But there was grace. There was direction that did not fail. I had faith. When creation rose up around me, I glorified my creator. But I still needed his word, a map to show me the way. Together, they guided me home. There was only one way, Christ alone. There is only one true north. As a young African-American girl growing up in the deep south in the early 1900s, she was steeped and around the horrors of racism. In fact, she would find herself with the Ku Klux Klan running rampant in her life and in her neighborhood and in the area around her. She would find herself underneath her bed, clutching her Bible and citing one psalm over and over again. It gave her so much, so much courage and comfort, Psalm 23. Verse 4 was the one verse that would sing into her heart. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. She would surrender her life to Jesus, and then for the rest of her life, she would give God authority in her life through his word. It, we, she would find that it would cause her to make decisions that were godly decisions and give her courage on those really, really tough decisions. A, a, a great decision that she had to make and a tough decision she had to make on December 1st, 1955. As an African-American woman, she was sitting in the so-called colored people section of the bus in Montgomery, Alabama, when the white bus driver came back to her and said, you have to move to the back of the bus because I have a white man who's gonna sit right here in this section and you can't sit next to a white man. And at that time, the Holy Spirit brought a specific verse to mind, Psalm 23, verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. She looked him in the eye and simply said no. And we know the rest of the story. Rosa Parks on that day had a defining moment in history and God had guided her. She would be known as the, the mother of the American Civil Rights Movement, and she's one of my heroes in life. A theme in her incredible life was how faith, particularly scripture, led her decisions. Have you ever considered this book and what it is, the Bible, scripture? I mean, so many people look at it as simply a collection of stories and poetry written by a bunch of dead white guys that really have no meaning in our time. Or have you considered that it truly is God's word, God-inspired, and has the power through the power of the Holy Spirit to not only transform your life, but transform the lives of those around you? Well, such is what we're going to talk about today. In fact, if you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. When the Bible has authority over your life, it will influence your life. 
When the Bible has authority over your life, it will influence your life. And the reason why is because the Bible is radically personal. The Bible is a story of Jesus. It's God's story. That's why we say he's the author. It's the root word of authority. He's got this story. And he's got a story for you. You have a story. And you will miss out on your story if you don't understand God's story. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we hit week three of our series called True North. It's in this series in which we're looking at the five pillars of the Christian faith, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all based on the authority of God alone, and all for the glory of God alone. Martin Luther in the 16th century called those the five solas. Sola is Latin for alone. Today I get the honor and pleasure to talk about sola scriptura, that the authority of the Bible alone. Now, two weekends ago, Pastor Bob kicked us off with a great and deep teaching on, on the five solas and on the Reformation. I'm not going to go into any of that today. Uh, we simply don't have time to do that. I would recommend if you do not, or if you did not uh, get to see Bob's teaching, that you go back to that because it gives a great baseline for all of what we're going to talk about. Last weekend, Pastor Brian did a great job talking about the practical application of soli dio gloria to the glory of God alone. So today I'm going to talk about sola scriptura, scripture alone. And I want us to think about it in this way. We've got traditions that are out there and that we have uh, scripture. And at the end of the day, whether is it traditions, is it the opinions of people, is it the culture, or is it scripture that guides our lives? What has the final say in the major muscle movement moments of our lives? Well, here at Cornwall Church, we believe it's sola scriptura, that it's in scripture alone that we stand on God's word. So yesterday, Bob and I were just talking about different traditions in the church that can, can uh, contradict scripture or actually not even be, be in scripture at all that we, we hold tightly to. So I, I'll just name some of them. Altar calls, do we do them every week? Do we ever do them? Communion, how do we do communion? Do we do that every week or periodically? Hymns or no hymns? Do we do contemporary music? Uh, how do we celebrate Christmas? What about the infamous sinner's prayer? It's not in the Bible, but do you say it? And if you don't say it, does that mean you're not saved? What about Sunday school at 9.45, church at 11 o'clock, and then you got the monthly potluck? Do you bring vegan stuff? Do you go strictly with chicken and meat? It, what day of the week do we worship? Well, these are traditions. And at the end of the day, they can't trump Scripture. So we're going to talk about that. that. This was an issue for Martin Luther back in the 16th century. But get this, it was also an issue for Jesus. We're going to kick off today, we're going to look at a passage out of Mark chapter 7. And Jesus is throwing down with the religious leaders of the time. That would be the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees were hanging on to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, specifically the Mosaic Law. And what they would do is they added about 600 man-made rules plus to the law. And one of those rules was that you had to wash your hands before you ate, which is a good thing, right? However, what they added was, your hands had to be held a certain way as the water poured over your hands. Otherwise, you were unclean. Now, if you're unclean, that's a bad thing for a Jewish person. You couldn't attend the synagogue. You couldn't be within 50 feet of other people. And Jesus raises the flag and says, enough. Look at what he says, Mark 7, verses 6 through 8. Remember, we're talking about tradition versus scripture here. <clears throat> he, Jesus, replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. He's talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. 
As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. So the issue of tradition versus scripture, it wasn't only an issue for Martin Luther, it was an issue for Jesus, and Jesus always sided with scripture. In Jesus's time, they had all of the Old Testament that we have today, and he always sided with scripture. So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about biblical authority, what it means in our lives. In Matthew chapter 28, you fast forward three, three and a half years from, from the time Jesus threw down with the Pharisees in that first instance. And, and Jesus goes to the cross. He's resurrected. And before he ascends to the right hand of the Father, before he pours out his Holy Spirit, he gives us what we know as the Great Commission, a command to do things. Look at what he says, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them, the disciples, and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. How do we know? How do we know what Jesus' words are? How do we know what to teach? I mean, those are very important questions. Well, the answer is in Scripture. Because what God does is He uses the Bible the Bible to express his authority and his truth. God uses his scripture, his holy word to express his authority and his truth. So when we talk about biblical authority, we're talking about God's authority. And the, the issue though, is that we want to oftentimes pick and choose things out of the Bible. We wanna choose those good passages and say, well, I don't really believe in those other passages. And that's a very theologically slippery slope. Some of you in here today may be saying, well, Kip, what about some of those crazy things in the Bible? You know, the Bible condones slavery. The Bible condones polygamy. Uh, the, the, you crazy Christians pull out stuff out of the Old Testament and you whack it over our heads. Those are great objections. And we're going to talk about that at the end of today's, or towards the end of today's teaching. But what I want us to do is I want us to do an overview of the Bible. We need to understand why we can trust the Bible and, and understand the overall story of the Bible. So I want to start out by talking as, about the Bible as a story. The Bible as a story. So if you open up, uh, before I get to that, uh, N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is a current theologian of our time, probably one of the greatest theologians of our time. And he talks about the Bible as a play. And when you look at the play, it's laid out in five acts. So that's what I want us to do as we do an overview of the Bible. Act one is creation. Creation. If you open your Bible, you, you get past the, the, the table of contents, you get past the maps, and, and you go into the first page of the book of Genesis, and we see God creating. Now, fast forward all the way to the New Testament. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, the first page of the book of John. John says these words that in the beginning was the Word, the Word being Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, that everything has been created by Him, for Him, and through Him. Nothing has been created that has not been created by Jesus. So we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all in the creation account. God creates the heavens. He creates the earth. He says, this is good. And then he creates people. He creates people with a purpose. He creates people with a story. And when he creates people, he says more than this is good. He says, this is very good. 
Now, we know that God puts Adam and Eve in a, in a utopian environment called the Garden of Eden. And, and I would picture Adam having rock-hard abs, Eve having really good hair. They never have morning mouth. Life is good. They're, they're looking straight face-to-face -face with God. Things are going well for Adam and Eve. Yet we know the story. God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Just don't do it. I give you free will to do anything, but I, I don't want you to eat from this tree. You see, free will is a good thing. It allows us to love. God doesn't force his love upon us. He gives us the ability to love him and, and to obey him or walk away and say, jam it, I want nothing to do with him. So on that one day, Satan comes in. And when Satan enters the Garden of Eden, he approaches Adam and Eve and he tempts them. And when he tempts them and they fall for it, we have Act 2, the fall. The fall. See, Adam and Eve are tempted by Satan who says, did God really say that? Because he knows that if you eat from that tree, your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be just like God. And out of their self-centeredness and out of their selfishness, which is really what sin is, it's putting ourselves before God, our needs before God or others. Out of that self-centeredness and selfishness, all hell breaks loose on earth. Disease, famine, war, everything happens at that one event. And all of a sudden, they're standing, they're hiding from God, and then they're standing in front of God, and they're naked and ashamed. And what does God do? He doesn't slap them down. God does the first sacrifice that would point to Jesus. He sacrifices animals to cover them with skin, to cover their shame. It points to Jesus, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So time goes on. God throws them out of the garden. They have work to do. They have to populate the earth. And God says, you know what? I'm going to do a restart. He knew they would fall. He knew he would have to do a restart. I'm going to do a restart. He floods the earth. Some time goes by. The earth is populated again. And then we enter Act 3. God chooses Israel. See, God chooses Israel. He really chooses a man named Abraham, and he's going to populate and make a nation that's set apart from everything else on this earth. And it's a barbaric culture of that time, and he wants to set them apart. So he gives them really tough laws that they have to live by. Three sets of laws. Law set one is a ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is all pointing towards his glory. Soli Dio Gloria, the glory of God. It starts with a fear, a healthy fear of God, a reverence of God. And all of those sacrifices in the ceremonial law, they all point to Jesus, but I'm getting ahead of myself. He gives the Jewish people ceremonial laws. Then he gives them civil laws so they know how to live with one another. And then after that, he gives them moral laws so they can have a moral compass for their lives. And these laws were much more difficult and led Israel to a higher standard than the people of that time. They were stricter than the barbaric laws of the time. And all of them point to Act 4. And that's the life and ministry of Jesus. Act 4 is the life and ministry of Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, read, read it looking for Jesus because it's prog a progressive revelation of Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. Jesus comes onto the scene, steps down from heaven, gets into the dirt with us. He walks with us for three plus years. Then he takes on our sin. He goes to the cross because he's on a rescue mission, not only for this world, but he is going to start a resistance movement against evil. He's nailed to the cross. He dies, he's buried, and he's resurrected. 
he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And then, just before that, he pours out his Holy Spirit on his disciples. And he gives us the church, which is Act 5. Act 5 is the church. You see, before he pours out that Holy Spirit, he gives us the, the Great Commission. Go and teach in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy, Holy Spirit. Teach him my stuff, the things I've taught you. Go and do this. The disciples connect the dots from all that Old Testament stuff that it's all about Jesus. And they go out and now here we are. And our job now is to love God greatly, love each other dearly, and share his love. That's the story of God's word. And it's an amazing story. It all points to Jesus. But here's the thing. It doesn't answer the question, how do I know if it's true? Because here's the deal too, if it's not true, it can't have authority over our lives. Sola Scriptura means nothing in Scripture alone. It means nothing if it's not true. So what I want us to do is we're going to look at two passages out of the book of Luke. We're going to look at the bookends of Luke. If you open up your, your Bible to the book of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third gospel in the New Testament, Luke chapter 1 opens up and, and, and Luke's going to talk about why he believes what he believes. And we're going to go to Luke 24, which talks or wraps up how Scripture proves itself, okay? Remember, the, the main idea, when the Bible has authority over your life, it's going to influence your life because the Bible is radically personal. Let's look at this. Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Okay, so 2,000 plus years ago, Jesus is resurrected. And, and there's this guy named Luke, who's a non-Jewish doctor. And he falls in love with Jesus. And, and he's, he's in love with Jesus. He sees everything that's going on. He sees what's happening. And he writes to a guy named Theophilus. It doesn't matter who that guy is. And he says, I took eyewitness accounts. And I want you to know why I believe what I believe. Because the evidence points to truth. Because it's truth. So I want, what I want us to do now is shift gears. I want to look at some reasons why we can believe in God's word. None of these are in your link. You've got to go old school if you're going to take notes. So let's look at the first one. The first reason to believe in God's word, the truth of scripture, is that all four of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. All four of the gospels were written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, and that's important because historians in Luke's time, what they did is they, what they valued was surviving eyewitness accounts. Luke did what in that time historians would say this is true. If you look at Scripture, as I said, when Jesus was walking the earth, they had basically our Old Testament. And then 30 years later, when Luke is writing from, from basically 20 years-ish up to 65 years, we have our entire Bible at that time. All the people, thousands of people were alive and walking around, and Luke's words were not questioned. The issue, though, is what we've been taught or what our world wants to teach us is that the Bible is based on legends. And I want to talk about that. Here's how the story goes, uh, that that teaching goes. Jesus dies. He was a, he was a good teacher. And then uh, there's an oral tradition. And over time, the legend of Jesus is embellished. And after about 300 years, when the, the Roman Catholic Church gets together and they put together, or when the Catholic Church gets together and they, they put together the Bible, they pick and choose what they want 
out of the Bible to further that agenda. It's all based on this legend called Jesus. Well, let's look at that. Let's look at the legends because in Jesus's time, when you want to delve into scripture and truly understand what scripture says, we got to go into where the writer was at the time. And where Jesus was at that time, a legend would never be a little G God that would step down from heaven and get in the dirt with us. You would never see a legend in that time be a humble servant because that showed weakness. You would never see a legend in that time, hours before he's going to go up on a cross to die for his people, you'd never see him begging his father to take him out of the suffering as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. You would never see a legend of that time nailed to a cross in his underwear. You'd never see a legend in that time screaming from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You would never see a legend in that time allow women to be witnesses because in that time and in that culture, women had no rights. They could not be used as an eyewitness. Yet God's got a story and he flips it on its head. So it can't be a legend See, the, the scriptures were written in the time of the eyewitnesses, and that's important. Okay, let's talk about some other reasons why we can believe in this. What about the historical and geographical accuracy of the Bible? There are countless archaeological digs that have uncovered things that support the biblical accounts. Let me use one as an example. Um, king Hezekiah, he's a, a Jewish king in the book of Second Chronicles, and he was one of the few good Jewish kings. And at one point, he realizes that he needs to make sure Jerusalem is going to be safe. So he needs to make sure that they get, that they get water during a time of siege, that a, a foreign country could come and surround them. And, and so they've got to get water. So he builds an archaeological feat called Hezekiah's Tunnel. It moves water underground and into this big pool. Well, that's, that was founded, or that was discovered in the late 1800s. And there are countless other places, historical and geographical accuracy, that, that prove these biblical accounts or support the biblical accounts. But what about this one? Simply the power to change lives. This book has changed countless lives. It's changed mine. You know, I look at, at times when I've been suffering from horrific anxiety or horrific depression, and God has used this, specifically the Psalms, to pull me up out of those really rough times. Some of you here today are really suffering, and you're broken, and you probably don't want to hear about the Reformation, and I get that. But hear this, God will meet you right in your pain in the book of Psalms, or in some of those red letters that Jesus speaks. Dig into God's Word. The, the Ten Commandments have been a moral compass for countless people. So many great things have come out of this book. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount pushes against our legalism. It pushes against our pride. So it has the power to change lives. But what about this? What about fulfilled prophecy? Hundreds of fulfilled prophecies in this book. It, it, this is the Advent season. It's Christmas season. So you're going to see Isaiah, uh, a lot of books or, or, um, quotes from the book of Isaiah. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah nails identifies the Messiah, how he's, where he's going to be born, what his ministry is going to be like, and how he's going to die. Hundreds of years before it happens. The Book of Mormon doesn't do that. The Quran doesn't do that. Or what about this one? Uh, 1,600 years to write this. 40 different authors with one theme. And that theme is God 
seeking his creation for redemption through Jesus. And I think for me, this is the biggest reason to truly believe the Bible is that it's the truth about Jesus. It's the truth about Jesus. So let's go to Luke chapter 24, the backside of the book of Luke. And what I want us to do is I want us to look at, at, at a handful of verses, a specific passage, because Jesus is walking down a road. He's in his resurrected state. He hasn't ascended to the right hand of the Father yet. He's in his resurrected state, and he comes across two of his disciples. They don't recognize him because he's in his, his, uh, his uh, resurrected state. And he comes across these two disciples, and they're boo-hooing. They're all upset because this Jesus didn't do what they wanted him to do. You see, they wanted him to overthrow the Roman government so they could have a different life. So Jesus tries to help them connect the dots. And I think he, he can help us connect the dots too. Let's look at this. Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Look at this. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus lays it out to him. He's like, guys, you can't see the forest for the trees. And here's what's really important. He doesn't point him to the event. He doesn't point him to the nail piercings on his wrists, on his feet, on his side. He points them to the text. He points them to the scripture. He explains not just some of the scriptures, but all the scriptures. He says, guys, look, everything points to me. Don't you see all of that Old Testament, all that stuff we talked about? It, it points to me. Joseph, the story of Joseph, when he's, he's sold into slavery, yet he comes back and he saves his people. That story points to me. The story of Moses standing between God and the people. Don't you see that story? It points to me. David takes a stone and this punk teenager with no ability at all he slays a giant and saves his people. Don't you see that story points to me? Jonah's on a ship in a storm in the middle of the ocean and he's thrown overboard, sacrificed to save the sailors. Don't you see that story points to me? The Sermon on the Mount, my Sermon on the Mount, I gave it to you guys. You can't live it out. It's impossible for you to live it out. That is without me. You see, the Messiah has come to the whole world, not to just the Jewish people, to redeem all of us. And Jesus would have to go to a cross to be crushed for our sin. Legends are not, in Jesus' time, are not made of stuff like that. And they still don't get it. Verses 28 through 32. But through Scripture, he's given them hope. Look what happens. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So we went in to stay with him, and when he had reclined at the table with him, he took bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Look at this. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? When they invite Jesus into their lives, he opens the scripture to them and he explains it to them and they're blessed. God gives us this gift. It's a gift from him. And if we would just sit with Jesus each day and look into this and we look for Jesus and we see Jesus, the Holy Spirit highlights all the things we need to know and all the things we need to do. 
But here's the deal. It means nothing without the resurrection because it all starts with the resurrection. It all starts with the resurrection. If the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then our faith is meaningless. If the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then this is really meaningless. It all starts with the resurrection. Andy Stanley once said that, that Christianity is an events-based religion. That means it, it, the, it focuses on an event called the resurrection. But I would say that it's also text-based because the text, God's holy word, explains everything up to the resurrection and then explains how we're supposed to live after that resurrection and gives us principles to live throughout the entire Bible. How we understand this has a direct influence on our life. It's God's story, and he wants to write our story within it too. So about, I don't know, I think 30, 35 years after Jesus is resurrected, the Apostle Paul has been writing letters all over the place. Those letters are circulating around the church, and they're considered as holy scripture. He's in prison in Rome, and he writes a letter to his young son, his protege, a spiritual son, a pastor by the name of Timothy. And in the second letter, in his last letter to Timothy, just before he would die, Paul writes a very important message to Timothy about God's word. Look at this, a very popular passage, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Hang on just a second. All scripture. All scripture is God-breathed. At that time, at, at that time, the church had the Old Testament as we know it, and they probably had the, the Bible, 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. Of the 27 New Testament letters, they probably had anywhere from 20 to 25 or 24 of those, those letters. All scriptures God breathes is what he says. And it allows us to be righteous. I've talked about righteousness before. Righteousness, it means that we, when we receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we're covered. It's kind of like Adam and Eve when they sin and, and God covers them with a sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus covers us. So we're in right standing with God. And then we're allowed to live right wisely because here's what Paul says. So that the servant of God, that's you and me, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God creates men who would write exactly what he wanted them to write with their background, with their experience, and the time that they were in. He breathes out his word and inspires them to write to where all scripture is equally inspired. So that what scripture says, God says. What scripture says, God says. And Jesus would agree with that. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is given the, the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, I came not to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. I came to fulfill the law. Then he uses this phrase. It's a Hebrew phrase. It's with, with my death, burial, and resurrection, every jot and tittle, which means every piece of penmanship in the Mosaic law is going to be fulfilled. He believed in Scripture. Just before that, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes into the water. He comes out of the water. He, he, he is led out into the desert by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan. And how does he defeat Satan? It is written and he quotes scripture. It's important for us because Jesus believed in the totality and authority of scripture. And because of that, we should too. Jesus believed in the totality and the, the authority of scripture. And so should we. I mean, that should be the bottom line for our teaching today. Because if Jesus believed in it, why do we question? It's good to seek answers for your faith. It's, you have to be intellectually honest and do the research. And one of the things you should take comfort in 
is that Jesus believed in those things. And what that means is, is that we don't just believe in the passages we like. You see, what's hard about this book is God will push against you. He's going to push against some of your feelings. He's going to push against some of the things you may have been taught. And if you say, okay, I'm just going to accept the things that, that I agree with, but you can't push against me in this area. You're your own savior because God wants your entire heart and he wants to use this entire Bible to speak into your life. So what about those tough topics? Let me for the last few minutes here talk about three of those tough topics. There are a lot of tough topics in scripture, a whole lot of tough topics in scripture. And some of the objections that, that I hear with my non-Christian friends, or even some of my Christian friends, are, doesn't, doesn't the Bible support slavery, polygamy? You know, you Christians fill in the blank. So let me talk first about slavery. Does the Bible condone slavery? When we look at slavery, what we tend to do as 21st century Americans is we look through the lens of an African slave trade when we talk about slavery, which was horrific the African slave trade was horrible. People being kidnapped. Uh, you, you buy someone and you can do anything you want to them. You can rape them, beat them, work them to death. It doesn't matter. They have no rights because they are your property. Well, that's not what the Old Testament law was about when it came about to this thing called slavery. In fact, there was no such thing as a slave-free society in, in, in the Old Testament, specifically the Mosaic law. God lays out rules on issues of servanthood and issues of slavery. Because in that time, if you would go into debt with someone you, you owed money to, you could sell yourself to be their slave. It was about indentured servanthood. It was, it was, it was bankruptcy law is what slavery was in the Mosaic law. So what it meant is you could sell yourself into slavery for no more than seven years. At the end of seven years, you were set free no matter what. If, if the debt wasn't paid, you were still set free. And while you were a slave or a servant to the person who you sold yourself to, they had to treat you as equals and they had to treat you fairly. If you ran away the benefit of the doubt, according to the Mosaic law, the benefit of the doubt goes to you, a runaway slave. That was unheard of in that barbaric culture at that time. So when we talk about slavery, don't look at Old Testament slavery as the African slave trade. So what about, well, one other thing just, just popped into my mind. So racists and bigots have taken this, and they have twisted God's word around to support the African slave trade and bigotry. And God have mercy on their souls because they got to stand in front of him. Nowhere does God allow for that. Okay, polygamy. Let's talk about polygamy. Um, God says marriage is between one man and one woman. One and one, okay? Every time you add something to that, it's, it's brutal. If, if you look in the Old Testament and you look at polygamy, Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, a train wreck. Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, it's a train wreck. Solomon and 900 flipping wives, oh my goodness. Train wreck. Polygamy is recorded in the Bible, but it's not condoned. Just because the Bible records it doesn't mean it condones it. So Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, God is speaking through Moses to the, the Israelites, and they want to have a king. They're going to have a king someday. And he says, you guys are stupid, but okay, you want a king. Here's the deal. If you get a king, he cannot multiply wives. That's a Hebrew phrase for meaning you can only have one wife. Just because the Bible records it 
doesn't mean the Bible condones it. Last one, last one. This one's near and dear to my heart because I, I have found myself doing this and I've also, when I was a youth pastor, I used to have parents come to me all the time bringing out some weird, crazy things out of, out of the Levitical law, the Mosaic law. Um, the, the, the objection is you Christians pull stuff out of the Old Testament and beat us over the head with it and it's obsolete. And man, I tell you, that's a, that's a valid objection. So... Uh, Youth pastor time uh, years ago, I, I would have a parent come to me and say, hey, my kid wants to get tattoos, and so you got to tell them they're going to hell. And I'm like, wow, okay, um, well, show me, and let, let's go back to Scripture, because, you know, sola scriptura. Uh, where in Scripture does it say you can't get a tattoo, or that you're going to hell? Well, okay, it doesn't say that, but you tell them that, that it's against the rules, it's against God's Word. And they'll pull out this obscure verse out of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28, which talks about coloring yourself and cutting yourself. And it's in the context of don't do that because it's for in the pagan funerals of that time. That's how they did those things. Now, remember when I was talking about Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. He fulfills those ceremony, ceremonial and civil laws. So all of that Levitical law that was meant towards the Jewish people, it doesn't apply to us. If you start applying things like, oh, you can't get a tattoo because the Levitical law says so, well, then all of us are guilty because right now, as I see, no one in this room is wearing a, 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 an outfit that is made out of only one fabric because it's against the Levitical law to mix fabrics. So we're all guilty. You see the slippery slope we get into? Jesus fulfilled the law but that doesn't mean we throw the Old Testament out. That doesn't mean we throw the Mosaic law out. There are incredible principles that we get to bring into our lives. The moral law we bring into our lives. And on that whole subject of tattoos, while I'm on it, because uh, my son has tattoos. He's got some crazy ones, pretty fun ones, Pac-Man and things like that. He's an IT guy. And, and so I told him, because he, he said, hey, Dad, I'm going to get a tattoo. And I said, dude, just don't do something that dishonors God. If it dishonors God, then it's wrong. Be wise. Be wise. I don't think Pac-Man dishonors God. My grandson loves to look at his tattoos, and they talk about that. It's between you and God is what I'm saying. Okay. So many other objections out there, and there's so many answers. The Bible. It's a story. It's your story, and it's my story. Let me close with this. Ephesians 2, verse 10, the Apostle Paul, he says that, that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Workmanship. The word workmanship is very, very important. The, the Greek word is poiema. Poiema. Say that with me. Poiema. Come on. Come on. One more time. Poiema. Poiema. This is where we get the word poem. Have you ever considered that you are God's poem? That he's writing a story. He's written this big story and he wants you to come in to that story. Where does your story fit? If you miss out on God's story, his word, you're going to miss out on your story. And it's an incredible story. Let God's word have authority over you. And it will, I promise you, influence you. Okay, let me close too with a challenge. I want you guys to have a challenge. Uh, each week we want to give you a challenge that's very practical. And here's your practical challenge for this week. We would like you to read one chapter a day out of the book of Luke for the next 24 days. 
And the reason why is, not only do you get those, the, 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 the scripture proving itself, but also, this is the season of Advent. And Luke chapters 1 and 2 are amazing with the Christmas story. I'm going to be at this Wednesday night's refuge. I'll be reading the Christmas story out of Luke chapter 2. You don't want to miss that. 